trying to improve the food system is not an easy endeavor. Systems-based changes to the future of agriculture are going to take time and effort and the right type of capital. The food system is messy and there are a lot of interdependencies. While I believe it's important for people to invest in products, which I think are a really nice fit for a venture capital model, I think it's important that there's also a need for capital that takes more of a systems-based approach. Stephen Hohenrader returns to the podcast to talk about the approach he's taking at Grounded Capital Partners to invest in positive changes to the food system. We have a lot of disparate efforts to try and create solutions, but so often I observe that they are simply monetizing the symptoms of an unhealthy system rather than building the health of the system. Along the spectrum between conventional businesses and more aspirational businesses, Stephen sees opportunities to invest in the middle to produce real sustainable changes. By shifting that enterprise by 10, 20, 30, or 40% in a more aspirational direction, we can have a much greater impact than starting something small and perfect way out on the aspirational end of the spectrum. What's it look like to invest for systemic change on today's Future of Agriculture podcast? Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, if you've listened to multiple episodes of this podcast, you probably already know that it's important to me not just to feature the latest and greatest in food and agriculture, but also to ask the question, where's all of this going? I mean, obviously, the idea is that these stories will lead us in some way to a better food system in the future, but sometimes that connection is not always so clear. And that's because food and agriculture are really made up of complex systems, meaning that any real change is going to have to be much more than just a single tool or technology. It's going to have to be systemic in some way. But what does that look like? And how do we align resources with the positive changes we want to see? for the future of agriculture. That's really what today's episode is all about. Our guest, Stephen Hohenrieder, was first on the show back in episode 216 to talk about building a more distributed food system. In that interview back in 2020, Stephen mentions that he's working on developing a more permanent investment vehicle to carry out some of his investment theses about the future of food. What he described at the time has now become grounded capital partners, and I wanted to invite him back on the show to talk about this work. Before we dive into the episode, I do have a quick request of you, dear listener. Uh, this past year, I haven't done another listener survey, so I was hoping maybe instead you could just answer one simple question for me. Stephen's going to talk about a spectrum between conventional and aspirational. And using that spectrum, what I'd like for you to do is to tell me what you'd like to see more of in this show. So using, let's say, a 1 to 10 scale one being very conventional content uh, about the current state of agriculture and farming, and 10 being very aspirational content about what agriculture could be and not necessarily where it is today. Where would you rate this show and what would you like to rate it in the future? So one being very conventional, 10 being very aspirational. Send me your answer either in email form, tim at aggrad.com, 
or LinkedIn or Twitter also works for that, too. Just say I'd put FOA about a blank, you know, between one and 10, and I'd like to see it be more of a blank between one and 10. Now, remember, this isn't a one to 10 scale as in one bad and 10 good. This is a spectrum between conventional content and aspirational content. What isn't today, but what could be in the future? I hope that's not too confusing. This is the easiest way I can think of to get your input in a way that doesn't ask much of you, but also informs where this show can go. So please either email, DM, or tweet me with that information. Where do you see FOA now on that spectrum, and where would you like it to be in the future? If that needs a little bit more explanation for you, just wait to the point in the episode where Steven's talking about this, and it'll probably be a little bit clearer. So you could just pause and respond at that time. Okay, so now to our featured conversation here. Stephen Hohenreeder has over a decade of focus on regenerative food systems, having invested, studied, and collaborated across diverse categories in food and agriculture, including proteins, fruits and vegetables, nuts, and consumer packaged goods. His perspectives were shaped by a systems approach, the teachings of others, and observations in exploring a thesis for how our food system is evolving and a belief that all stakeholders are interdependent. Since 2017, Stephen has served as the CEO and CIO of Meyer Family Enterprises, an entrepreneurial impact-focused single-family office in the Napa Valley, where he oversees entities that include direct investments, real estate, and farming. Stephen's going to kick off our conversation here with talking about what led him to eventually starting Grounded Capital Partners. Having spent the last decade investing across different categories of food and exploring different ideas, I ended up deciding that the best way I could participate in all of this work was really to start from the demand end of the supply chain. So initially, I was investing with others on behalf of our investors in land and production and looking for ways to decouple the output from that production from the commodity markets through branding, adding value, or some means of vertical integration, really is a way to capture more retail margin at a farm level and get people paid for more regenerative practices. And there's a lot of great work that's happening in that space and a lot of capital that's being invested, although I would suggest not enough. But as I progressed through that journey over the last decade, realized that there wasn't necessarily a corresponding demand or market developing for the output of those operations. And so for the last four years, I've really been focused on working with companies who either have or want to have transparent, high-integrity supply chains, where we could look back up the supply chain to bring resources and create demand for the output of these more regenerative operations. And so Grounded Capital Partners is really the result of that work and thinking about where I could best play a role in both investing financially focused capital on behalf of our investors, but also create change in the food system and in agriculture. And what does that look like in practice as far as if you're working with a food company to create these incentives for a better food system? I would think, you know, first and foremost, they're going to say, well, what's the return on my investment? You know, is, can I raise my prices to my customers? Does it start there? Or, you know, where have you found that it starts? So I believe that very diverse stakeholders are all driving our food system in the same direction, which is increasingly being redefined by a fragmentation. So we 
are shifting to more regional human scale production that may over time create more of a hub and spoke system that creates a national or a global solution rather than ubiquitous companies, you know, making this change wholesale. So at Grounded Capital Partners, we will be investing in established mission-driven food companies that have scale where we can use that company and support that management team to lead our strategy in that category as a platform. And so we might acquire a minority or a majority position in that company in partnership with that founder or that management team. And then we'll bring capital and we'll bring resources and we'll bring connections and other resources so that we can support that partner with that company in not only growing their business, but also in looking all the way back up their supply chain to create more demand and connect their consumers all the way back to the source of their ingredients. And so I can give you some examples of companies like that, but a lot of investment capital is focused on more venture capital type startups that are providing technological point solutions to these systems-based problems, which is important. But I also think that there's an opportunity in the role that I have chosen to play is investing in established companies that have some scale and proven programs where we can then grow those programs to exponentially impact the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Let me make sure I, I'm tracking because it sounds really interesting. You know, what I'm hearing is that we have seen examples throughout history of change to the food system coming because a mission-driven company decided to stand for something and sort of the rest of their competitors had to say like, oh, in order to compete with them, we sort of need to raise our standards as well, or at least influence a lot of their competitors to improve the food system. Is that part of the thesis? And if so, what's an example or two like that where you've seen these mission-driven companies in the past that have influenced the food system in some positive way? Sure. So there are many examples, and we're at a, a, an interesting time in the history of our food system because I think there's a confluence of different factors that are enabling this. For one, I believe the consumer is going through a very structural but unconscious shift in their relationship with food that values the attributes of our food that look more like those attributes they valued before the industrialization of our food system rather than after. So it's not necessarily about local or organic, although that can make it easier. But I really think it's more about authenticity, traceability, transparency, and connection. And so people are reconnecting with the source of their food in different ways that are social and experiential. For companies, it's multidimensional. So for a company, not only does building an authentic brand and product, which is very difficult to incubate in a large organization, so oftentimes they start with smaller organizations, not only can that drive consumer relationship, but when we start to look back up the supply chain, and we saw this with COVID, that being less siloed and more integrated and recognizing the interdependence of all of the stakeholders in that supply chain makes the business more durable and more resilient. So there are a number of examples. Maybe I can use a tea company called Traditional Medicinals as an example. Traditional Medicinals, I believe, is the largest organic tea company in the United States. They are in Walmart, Amazon, you know, pretty much every retailer you can think of. But for 47 years, 
they have been building integrity into that supply chain. And they work, they source ingredients from 35 to 40 countries around the world in 240 growing regions and work with thousands of farmers. They've developed programs in each of those regions with their farmers and to help them farm in more agroecological, responsible ways. And we're instrumental in creating the Fair Wild Standard. But they also are impacting the consumer. So traditional medicinals produces more functional teas to address sore throats, immunity, constipation, and so on. And there is a lot of evidence that across sociological, cultural, geographic, and economic boundaries, people are using their teas as a functional remedy for these different indications rather than using over-the-counter medicine. And all of the traditional medicinals teas are produced to a standard that's of high enough quality that they're of that over-the-counter pharmacopale grade. So here you have a food product that is good for people. It's a great company. They have scale and they're having amazing impact around the world in the farmers that they source from. Interestingly, there's an incredible opportunity to grow their impact as they shift more of their supply to these farmers where they've developed programs. And as the company grows, they impact thousands of acres and, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of farmers. Right. I think about, for some reason, I, I think about Patagonia and what they have done, you know, where they have just developed this reputation for being very principled, very mission driven. It's obviously worked very well for them. We've seen some of that spread over to food, but but maybe not very much yet relative to what's possible. And I imagine that's part of your thesis is that, you know, that's going to continue to happen. And I don't know if Patagonia is a good example, but um, that's kind of where my mind goes with listening to what you're talking about. I think Patagonia is a great example, and it's almost too easy to use Patagonia. One of the things that I really value about Patagonia's message is that they're not perfect. And I feel like there's such a tendency for people to feel like their story needs to be perfect. And Patagonia is authentic in a way that says, you know, we are using maybe a chemical to treat the fibers of a jacket, which we wouldn't necessarily choose, but we don't have a better option right now. And so we can promise to you that we're looking for a better solution. But until we find that better solution, we feel that it makes sense to use this. And we're going to be transparent about that and disclose it to you. And you can choose to buy the jacket or not. And I think that that vulnerability is so important. And it may be one of the most valuable lessons that the rest of us can take from how they interact with the public. And as I think about the food system, I picture there being this spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, we have convention. And if we were to apply that to farmers, we have farmers who are doing the best they can. And they want their soil to be fertile. They want their water to be clean. They embrace biodiversity. If there is a group of people who gets systems, I believe it's farmers. And if you think about farming before really the Green Revolution, or you can choose whichever date you want, farmers used to farm in ways that built the health of that system through the activities of farming. They rotated more crops, they integrated livestock, 
They built fertility naturally in their operations. They broke weed cycles and pest cycles naturally in their operations. And today, we've really shifted toward more of a mindset of trying to control systems through external inputs. And I would suggest that this applies to our bodies as well. But when I think about this continuum from convention to aspirations, you have those conventional farmers who want many of the same outcomes that more aspirational folks want as well. And so if you then look at the other end of that spectrum, at the aspirational end of that spectrum, maybe you have people like us or academics or nonprofits or family offices or regenerative ag groups who have a sense of what's possible and maybe how things should be. And I find that so often that end of the spectrum is telling the conventional end of the spectrum they're doing everything wrong. And the conventional end of the spectrum is telling the aspirational end of the spectrum that they don't get it and it's hard. And that if they could, they would. And I think that both ends are right. But if you think about that continuum from convention to aspiration, there are dozens and dozens of factors that dictate any enterprise's ability to move in a more aspirational direction whether it's the skills of the team on a given day, access to knowledge, equipment, weather, public policy, markets for that product, or so on. So I often find that any operation that has scale is somewhere along that continuum, but they're not all the way out at the aspirational end of the spectrum. But when I think about capital, you know, capital is circling at 30,000 feet, trying to figure out how to invest in solving for a more regenerative or a broken food system. And so often that capital wants to tell a story that they are supporting what's possible. And so all of that capital flows into the far aspirational end of the spectrum, into de novo startups, into the technological solutions, and so on. And that's important. But eight or nine years ago, I decided that maybe the best way to not only invest financially focused capital, but also to drive impact and to shift more of these operations in an aspirational direction is to jump into the middle of that spectrum and invest in enterprises that have some scale where they aren't perfect, but where they have a desire to shift and where there's an opportunity to shift in a more aspirational direction. And by shifting that enterprise by 10, 20, 30, or 40% in a more aspirational direction, we can have a much greater impact than starting something small and perfect way out on the aspirational end of the spectrum. And I've participated in along that continuum in different ways, and I think it's all important. But um, as I think about the Patagonias of the world, they're held in such high esteem but I really value their willingness to show the world that they aren't perfect. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And for those companies, these scaled, mission-driven food companies, why is your capital a good fit for them as opposed to fueling their growth with either venture capital or or even loans or profits? You know, where is it that you fit as the missing piece for them? And I say you, maybe more appropriately, you know, private equity for these companies. Sure. Well, I think that part of what has driven the outcomes in our food system, and I would suggest other industries, is how the role of capital has evolved. And so often, capital has much more of a transactional mindset of trying to get what it can out of an investment, 
rather than using that capital to build the investment and as a result to then generate a return. And as a society, I would suggest that we today, we tend to value what someone is able to take from society more than we value what they contribute to the society. And I don't mean to get too philosophical, but I think that's really important in how we approach capital. And I can speak to my approach, and I think there are other people who are doing really interesting things, and there's a role for a lot of different profiles of capital. And collaboration among different profiles of capital is important, whether it be philanthropic, private, financially focused capital, or even public capital. And for a lot of the opportunities out there, I think that it takes that kind of collaboration. But nevertheless, I would suggest that the attributes of what's important in that capital are a long view. I think that a lot of our investment capital has become more focused around 10-year funds, where you're deploying capital, you're growing the investment as fast as you can. Because of the structure of that fund, you have to liquidate that investment and then you return capital to your investors. We've chosen to take more of a permanent capital approach and more of a holding company approach such that we're able to hold on to an investment as long as it makes strategic sense. And there are other people who are doing this as well. And uh, we've had the benefit of learning from them. There is perspective. You know, one of the things that I've observed as there's more attention being paid on agricultural investments and food investments, whether it's land production, food products, or technology, is that there are a lot of very smart people who see the financial opportunity in financing the solution to this very big problem. And investors, limited partners who are giving capital to people, whether it's an entrepreneur or a fund, are in many cases foregoing their basic due diligence criteria to try and achieve the impactful outcomes that they would like to see. And so they're investing with people who literally have no experience investing in agriculture, food, or the assets that underlie them. And it doesn't mean they won't succeed, but having spent the last 25 years in the investment industry and thinking about due diligence, the probability of that person succeeding are lower than somebody who has deep experience in that asset class or that sector. And that also then comes into play with the companies they're investing in because they are not able to add as much value or perspective as a partner to that company. And so I think that with capital, it's so important to bring a depth of perspective and an ability to sit alongside that management team if that's how you're investing capital in order to support them and in order to introduce them to ideas and introduce them to opportunities. And we could go on, but uh, I think it really comes down to aligned capital and a depth of experience that allows you to add value and partnership. Yeah, I, w I would like to go on a little bit on that. So I, I think part of this too is that aligning the right type of capital if you want systemic change. You know, it seems like with venture capital and the 10-year fund model you were just talking about, you almost need one specific solution to one specific problem in order to meet that timeline. You can't really see systemic change that quickly, you know, because it just seems like too much to try to get done too quickly. Can you talk about your view on that, about you know, what's it take for systemic change and aligning capital appropriately? Sure. So there's a role for 
every profile of capital. And I think venture capital is very important. But as a solution to a systems-based problem, unlike maybe technological solutions or social opportunities, the food system is messy and the agricultural system is messy. And there are a lot of interdependencies. And so while I believe it's important for people to invest in products, which I think are a really nice fit for a venture capital model, I think it's important that there's also a need for capital that takes more of a systems-based approach. And where the exciting part about that strategy isn't just in the individual companies. It's not in the Facebook they invested in or the Google they invested in. But what is exciting about the strategy of that organization is how they connect the dots. Because in the food system right now, we have a lot of disparate efforts to try and create solutions. But so often I observe that they are simply monetizing the symptoms of an unhealthy system rather than building the health of the system. And that's a really important distinction for me and for others. And I think we could apply the same thing to human health, right? A lot of the investment capital is going into developing drugs to address the symptoms of chronic disease rather than addressing the chronic disease itself. So in the food system, if the same dollars were applied, you could actually fix the problem, but there isn't really an economic incentive to fix the problem. Because the bigger the problem gets, the more profitable the solutions to the symptoms of that problem become. And so in the food system, I see hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars being invested in products, whether they're food products or technology products, that really are just monetizing the symptoms of an unhealthy system. And so while I'm not trying to convince others, and I don't believe others are trying to convince others that everybody needs to take the same approach, I do believe there's an opportunity and a need for some of us to take more of a systems approach. And it doesn't mean we can't invest in very practical ways. You know, we invest in companies, but what we do then with those companies is help them think about their supply chain from co-packing and manufacturing to sourcing ingredients to working with farmers and to thinking about all of the stakeholders along that supply chain. That's a really profound concept about addressing the symptoms to our food system rather than systemic change. Is there an example that comes to mind of that, of how we're focusing too much maybe on a symptom of a problem in claiming to solve the problem when we're really just addressing a symptom? There are. I hate to get into specific examples, but I would suggest that a lot of the work being done around plant-based meat alternatives is a good example. You have $2 billion being invested into a company who sources industrially farmed, chemically farmed ingredients, highly processes those ingredients, adds you know other stuff to them that you wouldn't necessarily choose to eat, and then tells the world that it's better for the planet and better for people based on a false narrative and a false dilemma that compares the product to the absolute worst of our food system without introducing other ideas. And if that same amount of capital just from that one company was focused on addressing the real underlying problems, I believe that we begin to have really significant systemic change. 
Very cool. And for companies to, you know, to be attractive candidates for private equity, this more patient capital that can kind of help with these systemic challenges, is it more common for them to forego venture capital early and to grow organically? Is venture capital kind of, you know, a one-way ticket to another direction or is that not necessarily true? So it's a hard question to answer because I think that there are opportunities for some companies to take venture capital and others where it doesn't make sense. The way I have historically described it to companies that are considering taking capital is whether it's venture capital, more longer term, family office capital, or even strategic capital, is you're setting yourself on a path. And the most important thing is to understand the path that you're heading out onto. And if that fits your model, understanding how that capital behaves and its intentions, then it's fine. For the work that I'm doing, the companies that we're investing in as platforms, they've been around for a long time or for quite some time. And often I have found that the only way to really build that authentic brand is you can't do it in an accelerated fashion. It doesn't mean you can't grow quickly, but it oftentimes doesn't align with faster capital, if that makes sense. And there are more patient venture capital sources and there are less patient venture capital sources. So it's hard to paint everybody with the same brush. But I do believe that for the companies we're investing in, that most often they are funded by the founders with friends and family. They've established the product. They've developed their core consumer base. They've grown the product. They may have taken in other capital. And you know this is a, a 5, 10, 20 plus year process rather than you know three to five years. With that said, I believe there's an opportunity and part of what we have done and are doing is look at that platform company as an opportunity to provide aligned capital to smaller emerging companies that are facing barriers to growth and access to the resources that the larger company might have. And so our goal really is to help build the next generation of large companies that are more focused on the attributes that we're describing today. I think, you know, our last episode was in July of 2020. So we probably did the interview a month or so before that. And one of the things we talked about was high land values, just high valuations of assets in general. And my impression is that since then, the asset values have only gotten higher. You know, does that make it difficult to find good places to allocate capital in this environment? I've been less focused on acquiring land for probably the last five years. And so I'm not a great person to speak to asset values, although I anecdotally am watching them go up. My focus in the last few years has really been related to farmers who are already on land and working with companies who can develop offtake relationships for their production. And whether it's because of generational transitions or economic pressure or some combination, or even, you know, I often see first generation farmers transitioning their practices because of pressure from the second generation who isn't even on the farm yet. Nevertheless, I believe there's a correlation between that and price, because if they are going to stay on their land many farmers are realizing that they're going to have to farm in different ways 
or start farming different crops and that they aren't as interested in the historical ways that they had farmed their land. This is what we also saw with grape farmers as we watched the wine industry evolve. So I I don't have a, a direct perspective on asset values, but I believe that all of these things are intertwined. I have a feeling that farmers in a similar situation to what you just described, you know, maybe they're looking at a generational transfer and with that, they want to change the way they're doing business in some way. Where can those people go to find opportunities? This is something I'm really interested in and I want to do more episodes on in 2022 is I'm calling it sort of a a farm strategy type series of like, where can they go? Do they just start cold calling mission driven food companies? Uh, you know, what are your thoughts there? So this is one of the challenges that I observed, that there are a lot of farmers who would like to transition and don't have a market for the output. And there are food companies who would like to source more regeneratively produced ingredients, and they don't know how to connect with the supply. When I use the term regenerative, it's not necessarily the specific label. It's more of a mindset of, you know, building health in that system. So you might use agroecological as well. The markets are developing and you see companies, large companies who are making announcements that they're going to buy more regeneratively produced ingredients. But maybe to your point, I do think that right now, the best opportunity is for farmers to create direct relationships with the food companies themselves. And there are more organizations that are coming together that I believe are going to facilitate that. There haven't been a lot of great resources for people to date, but those resources are developing. Thank you so much to Stephen Hohenreeder for coming back onto the show. If you like that episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to episode 216 with Stephen back in 2020 for more great content from him. You can also learn more about his work at groundedcapitalpartners.com. We'll link for that in the show notes as well. A quick reminder, in case you forgot, send me a quick email, DM, or tweet where you rate this podcast from conventional to aspirational, anywhere along that spectrum, and also tell me where you'd like to see it go in the future. For that, use one for very conventional, 10 for very aspirational, and let me know, timadagrad.com, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 